Lego. Lego funded a new study earlier this year. Weird, I know. Their goal was to try to find out what moms actually want for Mother's Day. Yeah, I'm talking about Lego, like the toy brick manufacturer. You've got to wonder what Cracker Jack marketing guy was like, let's fund a study on mom's gifts. I'll bet they want some Legos for, uh, for Mother's Day. Anyway, do you know what they found out? They polled um, 2,000 moms, and they asked them what they wanted for Mother's Day. They gave them a selection of things that they could choose from, and the resounding answer was time. I want time. No, I'm not talking about the sappy, I just don't want my kids to grow up. I want, the, I want more time with them kind of time. Um, winning out in margins of over 30 points higher than any other option, moms answered they wanted time alone. <laughs> and all the mothers said, amen, amen. Yep. Full disclosure, however, further down the article, there was a uh, Lego took out an ad on the site with the heading, Top Picks for Mom. Apparently, the top four Lego picks for mom is a Lego flower bouquet, a message board, a Lego Vespa, and my personal favorite, a Lego Harry Potter Hungarian horntail dragon. Uh, if you bought your mom a Hungarian horntail dragon, you are winning at Mother's Day today. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Lego is still trying to figure out the whole Mother's Day thing. And I don't mean to push back against the obvious, unbiased, top-notch polling of the toy giant, but they should have kind of stuck with their initial findings, time. Well over 40% of moms just want time alone. You're welcome. You can refund that gift this afternoon and just say you can have time by yourself today. I think, however, I've stumbled upon something that 100% of believing moms want for and from their children. And this comes to us not from some polling group or some business survey, not from some toy manufacturer, but from an ancient first century postcard of a letter written by a man who is well into his 80s. This doesn't seem like this would have any relevance to Mother's Day, does it? Well, in the third epistle of the Apostle John, this senior saint touches on what I think every believing parent longs for, and we've already read it, verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. We are sitting in a sanctuary this morning, and you Maybe you outdid yourself this year. You went the extra mile. You bought the bigger gift. You saved up. You did whatever. You made the breakfast, whatever. You drove to Hardee's like I did this morning to pick up the breakfast. You did it all. Hear me. What your believing mom wants from you is to walk in the truth. I think, I know I'm not a mom and I know I can't speak for them, but I'm pretty sure that they would say, hang the card, forget the flowers, forget the chocolates, whatever it is, don't even care about time alone. I want you, the desire of your mother's heart is to walk in truth. 
This is a favorite verse of my mom. And whether or not it's your life verse, I believe you'll find that same desire present in your heart and anyone who is poured into you. So what I want to do this morning is I want to do some work on this text. These 14 verses that come to us from the first century by a very old man to find out not just what mothers want, but what the Lord requires from every single one of us to walk in truth. Now, first off, you might question the validity of a 14-verse pamphlet of a book in the Bible. It stands in stark contrast, doesn't it, to, to some of the, the theological treatises like Romans or the, the great historical works like the first five books of the Bible or the book of Acts. But these short apostolic letters seem to have been fairly common in the early church. Paul and Peter and John himself, they made it a practice to write widely to some of these young church communities to better direct them what Jesus taught on certain doctrines or how to act and react in certain instances. Now these letters, we call them epistles, they would be sent to the appropriate church and then those which had a broader audience because of the content, they'd be passed around from church to church to church, being read aloud in their congregations, in their meetings, so that all would get the benefit of what the apostles were saying. So while the book of 3 John has a directed audience in mind, particularly to Gaius himself and the church there in that local area, I want you to know that this is a letter from the Holy Spirit to you today in 2023, Jolton, Tennessee. Very early in the letter, we're introduced to a man by the name of Gaius. We're also introduced to a man whom he calls himself the Elder. This is John the Beloved. This is John, the friend of Jesus, whom the Savior gave Mary into his charge at the very foot of the cross. This is John, who is one of the inner circle of Christ's disciples. It's been at least 60 years since Christ's ascension into heaven. Get this. If John was 20 when Jesus died and rose and ascended into heaven. He's now 80, and I think he's probably older than 20 back then. This is an old man. He spent every second of these decades investing into the church and others, and right here, he is writing to a man by the name of Gaius. We have no idea who Gaius is because this is an incredibly common name. In fact, there are at least five different Gaiuses referenced in the New Testament alone. But this one, this Gaius, John calls beloved or dear friend. Three different times, actually four, I, I miswrote that. Four different times in the text. He calls him dear friend or beloved. It's obvious that Gaius was a man that John poured into and discipled in the way of Christ. It's very likely that John personally led Gaius to the Lord, that he was the one who introduced him to Christ. And that's why John writes, I have no greater joy than to hear that you or my children walk in the truth. Now we're fairly certain that Gaius is not John's flesh and blood son, but rather his spiritual son. 
We don't even know that John was married, much less had children himself, although it wouldn't be out of the norm for him to have had a whole family. It probably is the case. In this, especially on a day like today, referencing what I've already said, I hope you find special comfort. I know that we have in our midst those who've longed to have their own children, and as I said earlier, for one reason or another, that has yet to happen A great many of my friends for whom this is the case, I have found that they have thrown themselves into ministering and adopting and discipling others as their own spiritual children. And so with John, you can say, I've got a lot of children that I'm pouring myself into. I've got no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. You can hear how much love and affection John has for Gaius, can't you? He prays in verse 2 for this, we assume, sickly man, Gaius, that he would be as well physically as he is spiritually. Hear the right kind of joyful pride as John commends his brother and son in the faith for walking in truth. Whatever John's marital status is, whatever John's fatherhood status is, he has found fulfillment and great joy, the greatest of joys, and pouring himself into young believers. I say again, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. The language here says that John's biggest, strongest, most mature gladness, those are the the literal ways that we could interpret this passage, the best reason for him to rejoice is that he has spiritual children who are faithful. They're walking in the truth. So what does it mean to walk in the truth? If this is John's greatest joy, if this is what he gets the most fulfillment out of, hearing that his children walk in truth, I think it's probably important that we delve into what does this phrase, walking in truth, mean? Well, Strangely enough, John doesn't give us a detailed definition. The Bible isn't a dictionary, probably because he thinks it's a little self-explanatory to walk in the truth. He gives us examples. Gaius, he, he knows the truth of the gospel. He walks according to it. So instead of giving us the dictionary definition for the term, John instead proceeds to give examples. There's three in all that he is going to list Two who walk in the truth, and one who doesn't walk in the truth. If you're like me, sometimes I understand what something is best by understanding what something is not. And John hears that. So he's going to give us two examples of men who are walking in the truth, and one who is, he is not walking in truth. John will call him evil in a second. And by the way, he's a leader in the church. Let's move on. John is especially thankful for Gaius because it seems as though Gaius puts the gospel into shoe leather. Look at verse 5 of 3 John. He says, Beloved, or Gaius, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. I think we have to understand something about the first century to really understand what John is commending Gaius for here. This was the first century in this area and era 
It was a time of much transition in the church, okay? This first generation of Christians, they were spreading far and wide. They were leaving home and hearth to to preach the gospel anywhere and everywhere that God was calling them to. They're trying to take the gospel as far as they could, as quickly as they could. Also, add to that, persecution is rife in the empire, as so many apostles had already been martyred for their faith. So there was this need in the Christian communities, in these local churches, like the one that Gaius was a part of, to stick together, but also open their doors widely for anyone who might visit. I want you to think about that with me for just a second. We here in the 21st century, with all the liberties and freedoms that we enjoy, and we enjoy a lot, let me tell you, we don't get this. Hear the nuance of what I just said. They are killing Christians publicly, but you also need to be a welcoming people as publicly as you can. You see the danger in that? What if one of these Christian travelers who showed up to the church's door one day was actually a Roman spy sent to take down names like a first century Gestapo? What would you do then? How would you welcome in the stranger? We don't get it today, as I said earlier. We can be so bold in our congregating together on Sunday that we put a sign out front. We publish our times online. We hope as many, as, many people as possibly can can fit in here. We know exactly where and when we are meeting. A regular building isn't good enough. We've got to throw a steeple on top of this building to make sure that people from miles around know, hey, there are Christians who meet here on Sunday morning. We want everyone to know that we're meeting. We want the publicity. But the stark reality today is that many of our brothers and sisters across the world today are right now meeting in private in what we have called the underground church. They have the very difficult task of trying to figure out, as they in the first century did, do we welcome this person in or do we try and mark this person as one who would do us harm? Well, Gaius is in the church, and Gaius pretty much says, if we're going to err, we're going to err on the side of welcome. If they try to infiltrate and take down our names and spy on us, they are going to have to do so, stepping over our love. Arms wide open. That's Gaius. He lives by faith, he welcomes strangers, he practices true biblical hospitality, which is xenophilia, which means stranger love. He loves people who are different from him. He loves the stranger and brings them into his own home. He's going out of his way to make sure that everyone hears the gospel and can come into a Christian community. What's more is that he's super involved, Gaius is, in sending people out. This isn't just about hoarding and collecting Christians in his own church community. There were loads of transient missionaries during this era who would travel from town to town, city to city, preaching and building up the local churches. And Gaius didn't just throw open the door to them, he opened his bank account to them. 
He realized that all he had was given to him by God and it should be used for God. Christian, we ought to hear from Gaius this morning. Everything that you have, every good gift comes from the Father above. It is his and it ought to be used for him. That's Gaius. This week, I've referenced it multiple times. We've had a great example of that kind of generosity lived out in front of us. One of the saints who's gone home was Brother Bob Fleming. He went to be with the Lord last Saturday. We had his homegoing service on Thursday. Brother Bob and Miss Ruby, they sat right down here where Anna and Michael are right there to my left in the middle of the section here. Brother Bob had this booming voice. Those of us who knew him well knew why he had a booming voice, because he struggled to hear. One of the greatest things that I will miss about him is hearing at the very beginning of service with the piano playing or the sound system playing and people milling around and fellowshipping. You could still hear Brother Bob saying, Good morning! Hey, brother! This man loved being with God's people. In fact, even up to his final few days on earth, he told me that one of his goals was to get well enough so that he could come back to church. I am certain that there's, a, that there's an accountant somewhere who could figure it all up, but I don't think we will know this side of eternity the amount of resources that Brother Bob Fleming poured into ministry work. Aside from giving to his church, he was generously giving to Free Will Baptist Family Ministries, which ministers to foster kids and kids who are in trouble. He also gave to what we've called here at the church the Fuel Project, where a few years ago, Amy found out that there, were, there was a number of children in our own community who were going home on the weekends hungry without enough food in the cabinets. And so she took it upon herself to rally the troops and, and people began to give to this fuel project fund. And, and every month or so, a group of our Awana kids would get together and pack these bags of nutritious snacks and food for, them, for these kids to take home on the weekend. Brother Bob heard about that ministry and gave a lot. That's Gaius. The Bob was a very modest man. You wouldn't have known that about him. But who knows the number of missionaries whom he gave to, whom he supported. Who knows how many hungry kids he fed, how many foster kids were in a loving and Christian home because he faithfully gave. Gaius. John says of him, you do faithfully or you faithfully do whatever you can for the brethren, and for strangers. He gives without wanting recognition or anything in return. He welcomes without fear of his own interest. He sends out people to do the work of the ministry. He walks in truth. He believes the truth and he lives the truth. I think sometimes we Christians believe the truth, but we struggle with living the truth. You know what I mean? harped on that, I think, for the last two Sundays, mainly because that's how the Lord's convicting me here lately. 
Gaius, no greater joy than to hear that you're walking in truth. But, Diotrephes. Diotrephes is the exact opposite. Polar opposite. Verse 9, John writes, and again, get this, this letter is being read in public to this local church. It is awkward in the gathering that morning. As John says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call him to mind. For his deeds, which he, had, which he does, prating against us with malicious words and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and he forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Here we have a man opposite from Gaius who walks in a lie. You following me? He claims to be a part of the church. It's obvious in John's language that he somehow even has a position in the church, but he's taken it upon himself to be the dissenting vote at every member's meeting. You know that guy? Don't answer. We don't have him here at New Hope, thankfully. He has a closed fist and a closed door mentality. That's Diotrephes. Who knows the whole backstory here? But John, who is an apostle, <laughs> the man who walked with Jesus himself, the last of the apostles, there are no other apostles left. John apparently wrote to this local church about visiting, and Diotrephes had the gall to rip up the letter, essentially. To say, we, we don't let John in this church. We don't let the best friend of Jesus in this church. He didn't want any more people in his church. He liked it the way it was. Matter of fact, he probably thought that there had been quite too many handouts going on in his church, and he was going to put a stop to it. Not here. Not now. Visiting missionaries would knock on the church door. Diotrephes turns them away. Nope, we got a budget. You got to schedule that thing in advance. We're not going to help you out. Visitors would come in their midst and Diotrephes, he stirs up the congregation, lying about them, stirring up strife, lying about who these people were. John uses a unique word to describe Diotrephes' backbiting here. It's a word that we don't use a lot in our modern day English. And the New King James, it's the word prating. Prating. The ESV gets it right when it translate, he translates Diotrephes' language as wicked nonsense. Why? Why does Diotrephes do all of this? Is it out of fear? Fear of getting caught, possibly martyred? Fear of going bankrupt? Not giving to certain people? Maybe that's part of it, but honestly, that's giving too much of the benefit of the doubt to this man. John gets to the very heart of the issue when he says, Diotrephes loves to have preeminence. 
He is, as we would say to our girls, king me first. I want things my way. I want to be the first in line. I want everybody to recognize me. I want to be seen by others. Give me the mic, don't give me the towel. Give me the stage, not the mop. He loves to have preeminence among them. Maybe that serves as the best anti-example or the best anti-type of what it means to walk in truth. It's all about me. Who comes, who goes, who gives, who gets. Diotrephes is the guy in charge. He likes it that way. He has the final say. And get me, people listen to him. They listen to this joker. They can't see him for who he is. Last night, our family took the challenge that I posted on social media and we read 3 John. I told you it would take you one minute and 43 seconds to read 3 John. Some of you are like, it took me three minutes. I'll have you know. That's not my fault. Last night, when we read these 14 verses together as a family, I asked Claire and Naomi, how do you think someone like Diotrephes got in charge of the church? And those girls are wise beyond their years. They gave me three really good reasons that we'll talk about maybe later sometime. Really good answers. But the bottom line is, people let them. They let him. They listened to this foolish, foolish man who said, no way, our doors are closed, our budget's closed, closed-handed, closed door. Not in my church. People let him rule the church like that. And so to the whole church, John pleads not just to Gaius, but in verse 11, he says, beloved do not imitate what is evil. Don't imitate diatrophies, but what is good. Do what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. It doesn't matter the testimony that he says. It doesn't matter what prayer he prays. It doesn't matter what sermon he preaches. It doesn't matter on what board he presides over. If he does not do good, which is walking in truth, living in light of the gospel, that man has no relationship with God. Don't be diatrophies. Saying one thing, living another. In this context, John is saying, put your foot down, church. Don't follow his example. He's not walking in the truth. He's lying. He hasn't seen God. He doesn't have a relationship with him as he says. You see, it had gotten so bad that Diotrephes had pretty much turned into the church's own secret police. They're trying to keep the Gestapo out, trying to protect their own selves, and, and he's pretty much turned into an informant himself. If he found out that there were people in the church who were helping someone else or welcoming them into their Bible study or bringing them into their home or conversing with missionaries, verse 10 says that the first he did was he would forbid the church to do so, but then he went so far as to put them out of 
the church. (laughs) He excommunicated people over the issue. He disfellowshipped people over this. He churched people, as we used to say, over whether or not they were hospitable, and if they were hospitable, not in my church. He excommunicated people over this. And in context, we can read verse 12 as if there is one person in particular which Diotrephes had marked for excommunication. And we're introduced to the third man who does walk in truth, similar to Gaius. His name is Demetrius. This is the final example of what it means to walk in truth, by the way. Demetrius here, he's a man that we suppose was just like Gaius, generous, welcoming, yet Diotrephes heard about it and churched the man, excommunicated him. So now John, who has some of the best credentials of anyone living at the time, is writing on Demetrius' behalf in verse 12, Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. We also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. Look, I spent a lot of time trying to study Demetrius out this week. That's all we know about Demetrius. (laughs) There's another Demetrius that comes up earlier in the New Testament, but this is not the same guy. All we know about this man is he's got a good testimony. Do you know what a testimony is? I think sometimes we downplay it. And we say it's just the story of how we came to Jesus. Look, that's a huge part of what a testimony is. That is like the main part of it. But the Greek word that's used here in the passage is martyreo. Martyreo. Demetrius has a good martyreo by all. Does that word martyreo, does it sound like anything to you in our English language? It's where we get our word martyr from. Christian martyrs, these who have laid down their own lives for the sake of the Gospel, Christian martyrs are the ultimate example of the word testimony because it means witness. That's what it means. Think of it. In a court setting, when you're called as a witness, you answer what you saw or what you experienced. And John here is saying that Demetrius, of Demetrius, he is a trustworthy witness. What he says is true. What he does lines up with what he says. He is a trustworthy witness. He's got a good testimony among everybody. He is walking in truth. But Demetrius is just one of John's learners or disciples who has a trustworthy witness. There was a man in the first and second century by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp learned Christianity at the very feet of the apostle John himself. And while he doesn't show up anywhere in scripture, His writings are prevalent in the early church. There's a lot of story around this dear old saint, but he exemplified his witness of walking in the truth 
when in his late 80s, his house was stormed by Roman soldiers who were sent to arrest him because he was a Christian thought and life leader. And seeing how hungry the Roman soldiers were, do you know what Polycarp does after he's bound? He asks the others in the house to go bring them food to eat. He was then taken to the local amphitheater where he was commanded once and for all to deny the faith. There's this weird thing that happens in the first and second century. Christians were martyred because they were called atheists. Because they denied that Caesar and the Roman gods were actually gods, they were called atheists. So they were martyred for being atheists. Isn't that strange how Christians who believe in the one true God were martyred for being atheists? Well, in the last directive that was given to Polycarp, he was told to motion to a group of Christians who had also been arrested and were going to the stake as well and say, I deny the atheists. So Polycarp is tied to the stake. He's about to be burnt and he's allowed to speak. And you know what he does? He looks at the governor of the mayor, the person who is persecuting him, and he says, I deny the atheists. These are the real atheists, not not y'all. These who claim that Christ is not the son of the God, this, these are the, I deny these atheists. And for that, a flame was brought, the wood was around him, It was lit. And one more time, we have on record from early church church tradition that Polycarp blurted out when he was told once more to deny the faith. He said, these 86 years have I served him and he has never done me injury. He's never done me wrong. How then can I now blaspheme my King and Savior? That's a testimony. That's a witness. I will live for it. I will die for it. I believe in who He is and I walk in that truth. Sometimes, if you're like me, we we read Fox's Book of Martyrs and we look at church stories like this and we think, man, I could could never live that kind of testimony. Guess what, friend? You probably will not have to in your lifetime. Maybe that's changing. I don't know. I've grown up in church for 36 years. I've heard pastor after pastor say, in my lifetime, they're going to persecute Christians. I guarantee you. That might be the case. I have no idea. Instead, rather, of questioning yourself, am I willing to die for my faith? Why won't you ask, am I ready to walk in truth for my faith? Few are called to die. Every one of us is called to walk daily in the truth. That's a testimony. In addition to Brother Bob, Miss Betty Sexton McMinnis went home to be with the Lord this week as well. 
And she herself had a great witness of faith in Christ among all who knew her. And it just so happens that she actually wrote a bit of it down for us. You might remember last year we went through a several month long campaign where we tried to record as many of the testimonies of our church members as we possibly could. We compiled them, published them in this booklet, the first of which is the first volume. We've called it, These Are Our Stories. At Friday's homegoing service for Miss Betty, I read her testimony in her own words. Many of you were here that day. Some of you weren't. And so you need to hear her witness. When I was 14 years old and in eighth grade at Four Corners Elementary School in Yellow Jacket, Colorado, we had nine months of Bible study. And we're finishing up a five-day Bible school. I knew that God loves us and wants to forgive us. I knew John 3.16, Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23. And on the last day of Bible school, Peggy Glasner, a woman whom I've never met, you probably haven't either, a missionary with Kansas City-based Village Missions, came to our community and presented the gospel so clearly to us. Miss Betty was in her 80s, so this is a while ago. She writes, the Holy Spirit convicted me and praise God, I received him as my personal savior. I prayed, forgive me of my sin and come into my heart. 17 were saved that day. And many are active in church still today. First, I told my my aunt, who was our teacher, and then my family. I was baptized in a creek in Cortez, Colorado at the Navajo Gospel Mission, which was run by, by my brother Norris. The Navajo Indians came to our church and sang for us from time to time. Peggy and another missionary, Kathy, helped me grow in the Lord. Later, Village Mission sent Millard and Ruth Bedwell to be our pastors so that we could have, con- con- so that we could have communion, but not foot washing. I learned this at New Hope. They, this couple, were the reason I went to Lancaster Bible College in Pennsylvania. I haven't had a word to this. I praise the Lord for the family in Christ, for the great teaching and for the loving pastors and their wives at New Hope. Being a Christian means walking in newness of life. I sometimes wonder what my life would have been like if missionaries hadn't come and brought the gospel. It's scary to think about. If you aren't a Christian, believe, confess, and accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, it will be the best decision of your life. I pray that I will meet you in heaven, that you will accept Christ as your Savior and have the peace, joy, and love that He has given me. She ends her testimony by giving us James 5.16, which is her favorite verse of Scripture. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I hope you know you have been prayed for by a dear saint, effectually and fervently, that you would walk in the truth. 
Listen to her testimony once more. Being a Christian means walking in the newness of life. That means the old man has passed away and new life is yours. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. This walking in the newness of life is the exact definition of what it means to walk in truth. So you, Christian, you have been given a new life that ought to be patterned after the generosity and welcome of your Savior. There is no place to have preeminence, to have it my way or the highway. That is not a part of our language anymore. It is not about us. It is about him and his kingdom. We are called to lay down our lives daily as a witness, a marturo, faithful testimony to what the Lord has done and who he is. Hear it from Miss Betty. Hear it from Brother Bob. Hear it from Miss Peggy. There is no greater joy. Father, please, move and change our hearts. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.